Well, this morning we continue on in the back end of the book of Acts. <clears throat> As we start to move toward the conclusion, very little bit will be revealed to us now about the last several years of Paul's life. We're just going to get this, the business of these trials, and then his trip to Rome, and that's all we'll get from Luke. So we're coming to the end, but we've tracked with Paul. We've seen how when Paul was first called, the Ananias came to him or was sent to him and was told to reveal to Paul how much he would have to suffer as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. From the beginning, Paul knew that his vocation would include suffering. And throughout the story, we have seen some of it. Although Luke doesn't give us a tremendous amount of detail as to the sufferings of Paul, though we get little glimpses here and there, but Paul himself will testify, as you know, in 2 Corinthians. He will elaborate in listing out his credentials. Uh, he doesn't give the typical credentials. Uh, he doesn't give his resume. What he gives is, are his sufferings. Uh, this, is, this is, if you will, the marks of his, of his authentication as a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, and you can go read that. But as, as we've referred to before, it's quite severe by our standards. Uh, but this is what Paul... Uh, uh, signed up for, if you will, when he heard the, the voice of the Lord and through Ananias and, and, uh, and went on his way as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we come to a text like we have today, as Mark read, it's filled with conspiracies and, again, uprisings. I mean, we've been with Paul now. He's coming to Jerusalem knowing that there was going to be affliction with his own disciples and new brothers in the Lord begging him with tears not to go, which we get, we understand. But Paul knowing that he needed to go, and like Jesus, as we've said, setting his face like a, fin a flint toward Jerusalem. We've picked up over the past couple of weeks on some of the Christ-like imagery here that is not meant to say, oh, Paul's another Christ, but only meant to resonate with the story of Jesus Christ as if to say Paul is the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He bears the marks <clears throat> of the Lord Jesus Christ. His ministry is Christ-like as all of our ministries are to be, as all of our lives are to be. It is Paul picking up his cross, denying himself, following the Lord Jesus Christ, in this case, in a very Christ-like way, right into Jerusalem and into the angry crowds. <clears throat> so we've seen these little echoes. And, and last week in particular, it was the accusations that were thrown against Paul that again resonated for us and made a connection for us between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of Paul in that the accusations had to do with the temple. Jesus was accused of saying he would destroy the temple. It was a lie. He merely said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. But as, as John reports, the temple of which he spoke was his own body and he never said, I'm going to destroy it. He said, destroy it and in three days I'll rebuild it. But they accused him of saying he would destroy the temple. Paul was accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple, also something he did not do. Falsely accused of defiling, speaking against the temple, which, as we know, had become an idol for the Jewish people, at least the Jewish leadership at that time, so much so that it blinded them from seeing the true temple in their midst. Here the true temple has come for them. right? God dwelling, Emmanuel, in the flesh, tabernacling among them, and they could not see it. They were blinded by this idolatry and desire for the shadowy temple, the earthly temple, <clears throat> and couldn't see Jesus Christ. 
So we saw Paul accused. We saw Paul rescued by the Romans of all people. The Romans rescue Paul and bring him into the barracks. Paul then says, may I step up and address the crowd? He, he addresses the crowd and, and, and in his addressing them, they silence. He makes his case about who he is. And then when at the very end, he says, and in all these things, I was commissioned to bring the light of this truth to the Gentiles. That's it. The crowd erupts again. They want to tear him limb from limb. And that's it. The, these, these leaders of the barracks who can't understand what's going on, these Roman garrison leaders, they, they, they don't understand Hebrew. All they see is Paul say something. The crowd erupts, and they say, you know, we've had enough of this. Paul's inciting a little bit of a riot here. And so they take him, and they're going to beat him. And just as they're going to beat him, Paul says, one, one more thing. Is it, is it permissible for you to beat a Roman? I, I'm not sure. Paul knew exactly what the law was. But is it permissible for you to beat a Roman? And uh, they say, well, you're a Roman? You're a Roman citizen? He says, yes, I'm a Roman citizen. And they can't believe it. But he says, I was born a Roman citizen. And immediately they drop the whips. They drop everything. Oh, my goodness. We didn't know he's a Roman. We're, we're going to get ourselves in trouble if we're beating a Roman citizen. So they untether him. And they just, you know, they, they guard him and protect him. But now finding out he's a Roman they realize, okay, there's going to have to be some, 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 uh, some due diligence here and some jurisprudence that's going to have to be in place for Paul as we move forward. That brings us to the story that we have today. And I want us to think of the story as it's divided. It's really divided into three things. We have the, the, the uh, trial, if you will, or this hearing before the council, the Sanhedrin. Then we have uh, the, the conspiracy and the plot to kill Paul. And then we have Paul with Felix. Uh, we're going to deal with Felix in, in the weeks to come. But I want us to think really about this story separated into these two things. Paul before the Sanhedrin and then the conspiracy and plot to kill him. And in the first part, the, the Paul before the Sanhedrin, I guess I'd like us to once again hold Paul up and, and reflect upon him and what he's doing and his character uh, as, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and in some ways a model for us, and this isn't, you know, unbiblical. Paul very much says to his churches, "Follow me. Follow my example as I follow Christ." So, so we'll hold up Paul and we'll look at him. And then, secondly, in the conspiracy, I want us to think about God. Uh, I want us to think about the character of God in what's going on here, and and particularly uh, His providence, uh, His amazing and and secure providence, so that we might rest. Uh, in him. That's what Psalm, Psalm, uh, 57, or Psalm 37 said. Rest in him. Wait on him. And that sounds so nice on a Sunday morning. We're all sitting here so peacefully. But it's another thing when the angry mob is out there wanting to tear you limb from limb. It's another thing when we've got a really scary doctor's appointment this week or when we are dealing with a tragedy. or you know, Then that's when this stuff gets very hard. And Paul was in that. Paul was in the midst of that. So we want to think about that on the back half of this. So let's think through the story here very quickly. That story that I just concluded has happened. <clears throat> Paul is in the barracks. And the leader of the barracks decides, you know what? I'm going to give the Sanhedrin one more crack at this. I'm going to bring Paul out one more time. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm going to bring Paul out one more time and see if they can settle this. If they can settle this, this is great because then I don't have to deal with it. So I don't know what's going on here, but it seems to be something with their own customs and laws. So I'm going to take Paul out, let them have another crack at him, see if we can deal with this. <clears throat> they bring Paul out, 
And Paul begins to speak, and it doesn't take long for things to get crazy because Paul says there in in, uh, verse 1, Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, now they know the story with Paul. They, right, the rumors have been spreading all over Jerusalem. Remember, James is even saying, among the Christian brethren, there are rumors that you are saying, hey, toss Moses in the garbage heap. There's no need to obey the ceremonial laws anymore. And people are very upset about this. It's been a stumbling block. And that's what started this whole mess because Paul follows the advice of James. Not that it was necessarily bad advice, but again, in God's providence, it is what it is. He follows James' advice to go down and help these four guys pay their vow, and, and, and literally all hell breaks loose <clears throat> as he goes down to the temple. They know about Paul. They know the rumors that are out there, and they know, if nothing else, he's not Saul anymore. He's Paul. He's no longer this one zealous for the law. Now he is one zealous for the Lord Jesus Christ, zealous for this would-be Messiah, zealous for this crucified king. And Paul stands before them and gives a very Jewish comment. I stand before you as a servant with good conscience. Not that I have no sin. That's not what that means. It just means I, I'm, I'm an obedient servant. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm serving the Lord, and my conscience is clear. But part of that is meaning I take use of the law of God. I confess when I need to confess. I deal the sacrifices when they need to be dealt with. That's how a Jew would think of that in this time. I'm, I'm, I live according to the, the word of God. I, I live in good conscience. What, what makes the high priest flip out is when he tacks on this little comment at the end, to this day. Because when he says, I'm, in good con- I'm a servant of the Lord in good conscience, to this day, what he's doing is he's linking his obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ with that Old Testament obedience, right? The language they would use in serving the one true God of Moses, the God of the Old Testament. And Paul says, yes, I have that clean conscience as I do this kind of service to the Lord Jesus Christ. He links his present circumstances to his prior circumstances. Right? He links, if you will, new covenant to old here in saying, to this day, I live with a clean conscience. Now, at that point, Ananias, the high priest, signals, we don't know how, how he gives the nod to the bailiff to walk over and slug Paul. But he does, and the guy goes over and hits Paul in the mouth. But, you know, punches him in the in the face or strikes him with a rod. I don't know what he did. Paul then snaps back and he, he says, the Lord will strike you. You, know, you. you strike me? The Lord will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And Paul reacts strongly there. At which point the people break out and say, well, hey, you can't talk like that. You can't talk to the high priest that way. And Paul says, oh, that's the high priest. Oh, that's the high priest? I didn't know that was the high priest. I shouldn't talk like that. Now, we don't know what's going on here. It's kind of hard. One thing, like, I'd like to see the video clip of this, but I don't get it. I just get Luke's version. So we don't know what the heck Paul's doing here. What do you mean he didn't know that was the high priest? You know, the high priest makes himself known. When the high priest is in the room, you don't wonder. 
I wonder which one in here is the high priest. He's got the garb. He's got the regalia. He's got it all. So I don't know what this. Some have said, well, Paul's eyesight was going bad by this time. Maybe that is the case. But he, in the very next verses, he discerns with his bad eyesight that there's Sadducees and Pharisees in the room. So it seems as if he's got enough eyesight to see that. So I, I can't believe he just didn't see the high priest there. I don't know what he was doing. Maybe he's just making an excuse for his outburst. But nonetheless, he says, I did, oh, I didn't know that was the high priest. You're right, I shouldn't talk like that. He quotes the law from Moses <clears throat> and then goes on. And then quickly, quickly diverts away from this and just throws a little hand grenade into the crowd, uh, uh, a, a, an argumentative, you know, a verbal hand grenade, rhetorical hand grenade into the crowd by discerning that there's Sadducees and Pharisees here who don't like each other. The Sadducees are the religious liberals, right? They, they deny the basic fundamentals of the, the faith, right? They, they, don't, they don't believe there's any such thing as resurrection. They don't believe in spiritual things. They don't believe there's angels. They don't believe, you know, that's, that's, that's so yesterday. And the Pharisees are your, are your religious conservatives. And, of course, Paul was one of them. And so Paul... Paul, like he says, hey, I'm a Roman. Here he says, hey, I'm a Pharisee. I'm one of you guys. And I'm being tried here because I'm teaching that there's resurrection, the hope of the resurrection. Now, as far as I know, at this point, he was not being tried for that. He's being, he, the, the charges that were brought against him were that he, would, he, he dragged some Gentiles into the temple and defiled the temple. But again, Paul just throws this rhetorical hand grenade out there because when that happens... This fight breaks out between the Sadducees and the Pharisees over the resurrection. And that gets Paul off the hook for a little bit, you know, and, and they're now now they're going back and forth at it in the presence of this, you know. I've seen this kind of thing happen at, at Presbytery. You know, when, when a guy's up there, you know, you're being grilled by your presbytery. And it's very I've I've had to go through this, obviously. And it's a very unsettling thing. And every now and then, every now and then, a candidate for ordination or licensure or something really hits it rich <laughs> when an answer to a question or a question posed to him starts an argument among the presbyters themselves and next thing you know they're going back and forth and it's just like oh okay you, you, it, it's a distraction you're not under the, the, the bright lights right they're, they're going at each other and then when they finally get back to you it's like, you know, you're some candidate. Okay, what you think is one thing, but we're, we're having this fight amongst ourselves. And that's kind of what Paul gets here. He, he, he's freed for a moment, and a fight breaks out. Well, when the fight breaks out, the leader of the garrison is like, oh, no, here we go again. So he jumps in, grabs Paul, and gets him out of there. Once again, brings him back to the barracks. Finally, I, I got to believe that argument kept going. <laughs> Even after Paul was gone, maybe they didn't even realize Paul was gone. They turn back to Paul. He's not there anymore. So they go back to fighting. But when it's all said and done, <clears throat> they realize they've not dealt with Paul. So 40 men, most likely of both parties, come together and say, you know what? We've had just about enough of this. Let's put an end to this. So they scheme that what we will do, in fact, they take a vow. Think about this vow before before God. We will not eat or drink until we've killed Paul. God, we promise. Okay? That's a, we promise that we will not eat or drink until we have murdered Paul. 
then they go to the high priest with this vow. This is how bold and how confident they are in Ananias's heart. They go to not seeking Ananias's wisdom. Hey, brother, father, do you think this is a wise vow? No. They say, hey, listen, we want to bring you in on this because actually we need your help. So we vowed before God that we would not eat or drink until we've killed Paul. We could really use your help on this because if you would go and have them bring Paul down for one more time, one more trial, we'll lie in wait, we'll pounce on him, and we'll kill him. Then it just so happens that this character that we've not heard anything about, in fact, We've not heard anything about Paul's family at all. But lo and behold, just Luke just throws in here, oh, and Luke's, and Paul's nephew. You're like, you're like Paul's nephew? But Paul has a sister? It's just a man. It reminds you, Paul's a real guy. I don't know. For me, it did that. It's just like, Paul had a sister? That's neat. He's a real, you know, he's not just this sort of, you know, maverick person out there. He actually had a family. Like, hello, we all know this. But when you find out his nephew comes to talk to him, it's just, I don't know. For me, it was sobering. It was just grounded him back in reality. He's not a mythical figure. We don't know what the deal is with this family, but it, they're, they're dwelling here. And somehow his nephew, who by the language is probably somewhere late teens, maybe 20, <clears throat> gets wind of this plot. The nephew finds out about this and decides, I got to go help Uncle Paul out. And so he gets into the barracks and tells Paul, hey, th listen, you do not, th this is what's going to go down. You don't make sure you don't let this happen. And Paul, well, I have no power. I'm a prisoner. I need you to go talk to the leader. So they bring him to the leader and he tells him and they say, oh, whoa, okay, we see what's going on here. And they decide we're getting him out of here. And they really go overboard. Get me 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, get a horse ready for Paul. They treat him like a Roman citizen he's not going to be walking we're going to get mounts ready for him set him on a horse we're going to get him to felix up in caesarea so that he can receive a trial up there by felix who is most excellent felix he's a governor there he was a feisty governor he was known for having a very very hot temper you don't mess with felix and the, you know and all but all the common courtesies are there and, and it's amazing too by the way that luke includes the letter from this guy to felix in the bible like, he writes this letter to most excellent Theophilus. Remember, uh, when, when uh, Luke and, and Acts are written, they are written to most excellent Theophilus. Now, we don't know who this Theophilus is, but the fact that Luke uses the title most excellent Theophilus tells us that he was probably some kind of Roman leader, some kind of aristocrat of some sort. And you see the same title given to uh, Felix, most excellent Felix. So whoever Theophilus was, probably a Roman whose name could not be used. Theophilus means lover of God and, or beloved by God. And, and so Luke writes to him, but he's most excellent, Theophilus. Gives us a little insight there into maybe who Luke is writing to. But Luke includes this letter. Felix gets it and decides, all right, even though you're not from my region, I'll take up the case. And that's the story that we have before us. Now, let's break it into two and think quickly about it. First, the Sanhedrin, the council, Paul is brought before them. Once again, we learn something about the nature of Paul. First, we learn of his boldness. Paul takes the opportunity here to stand and speak. He does not shy away. Right from the first moment, I am a servant of the Lord and have lived in good conscience before God to this day. 
which results in the slug in the face. But Paul comes in with boldness, even when he speaks to the Pharisees and Sadducees, and again, throws the rhetorical hand grenade in there, and I think knowing, knowing what he's doing, but also, I think, looking for an opportunity to talk about the resurrection and not talk about Gentiles coming into the temple. But let, let's bring up this subject while we're all gathered here together. Paul is bold for the gospel. For Paul, every opportunity, whether it's in chains or whether he's free, is an opportunity to share the gospel. Even this inquisition is a chance for him to do it. So we see, once again, the boldness of Paul. Paul is willing to stand and put himself on trial. I have a good conscience even to this day <clears throat> but then you do have this incident where they slug him in the face and the scriptures say you know Jesus though he was reviled reviled not in return we know in fact when Jesus when we're going through the, 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 the times of Jesus trial he's being slugged he's being struck he's being falsely accused he's being spit upon and Jesus never lashes back it, it feels superhuman. And I suppose it is. It, it's, what a sinless man, it's what a sinless man does, what the God-man does. But here I think we can be encouraged to see what sinful men do. Sinful people like you and myself. Paul lashes back here. Now in some sense you might argue, and some have, that Paul is being prophetic, like Ezekiel. And, and I, there, I don't deny that the Lord is using the mouth of Paul to bring prophetic judgment upon Ananias and all these would-be inquisitors. But Paul was not right in doing it. He, he confesses that and actually says, I'm violating the law. He does, you know, what the scriptures say, don't do. You know, when they slap you on the cheek, you, you reach back and, and, and punch back. And, and that's what Paul does here, verbally. <clears throat> he takes it in the mouth and that frustration boils over and he pops up and snaps back. The Lord will strike you, you whitewashed wall. The Lord will strike you. Now, it's prophetic because it's true. The Lord will do this. Again, he knows the psalm, Psalm 59, Psalm 37, which we've read today. The one who's being pursued by the wicked, <clears throat> the one who's being pursued by the enemies of God, should rest in the Lord, for the Lord will destroy them. This is where singing the Psalms can sometimes get uncomfortable because it is so not politically correct. It's weird sometimes. I know you can confess this. It is weird to sing what we sing sometimes because we're singing things that are telling the Lord or asking the Lord or celebrating the fact that the Lord will smite the wicked, will destroy the stupid. <laughs> There's one Psalm that says that. It's always a little awkward to sing that. These are hard things. They're not politically correct. But, but let me tell you what. It had to have been Paul's comfort in this moment. And in fact, he lashes out with it. I know what the Lord's going to do to you because I know the Psalms deep in my heart. The Lord will strike you. You know, in Psalm 2, one of my favorite Psalms, <clears throat> that coronation Psalm, you know, it says at the very end of that kiss the sun lest the anger of the Lord be aroused he will dash you to pieces like pieces of pottery with a rod of iron I mean pretty violent stuff 
And here, too, Paul knows the Lord will strike you, you vessels of clay, you whitewashed walls. The Lord is going to strike you. Now, he, he, he thinks twice about it after, after he says it, but, but he, he steps up and he, he, he brings that quick smack down. The Lord's going to strike you, and then he calls them whitewashed walls, much like Jesus referred to the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. You know, I grew up on a farm, and I remember working on the farm, and, and twice a year the whitewasher comes because in the, inside the barn, you know, the, 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 cows, the cows face with their rear ends toward the wall. There's about, there's about six feet between their butts and the wall, and right underneath their rear ends is a, is a gutter, a trough, that care now you know these fancy updated farms you know that that when they when they move their manure it falls down on the floor it splatters everywhere because their rear ends are also about four and a half feet off the ground so when they do their business it splatters everywhere so then my job of course was to scrape it all into the gutter where then it would go out to the manure spreader and then out to the field but in all the splatterings over the course of a year you know it ends up on the wall there's all these splatterings of manure over the wall. And you're in it, you know, you're, you're, it's processing your milk that you drink. Now, your milk never gets near that. Your milk goes from the machines into the pipes, you know, sanitized pipes, and then into a holding tank. But, you know, the, the, uh, the health department does demand that the place be relatively clean. And so, but you have manure all over the place. So you have to scrape all this down, and then twice a year, the whitewasher comes. And literally, you clear the barn out, you tape everything off, and he comes through with a big hose of whitewash and just paints the whole inside of that barn. And for a day, <laughs> for a day, it really is beautiful. And you just, you I remember coming to, to work and you're just like, wow, it's just pristine for about a day. Because then, of course, the cows come in and that messes the whole thing up again. But, but you know because you've been working there all year what's underneath that whitewash. Now, we've scraped it off to be sure, but it, you, know, you wouldn't eat off it. All right? Let's put it that way. You wouldn't use those boards to eat off them. To whitewash something is to cover something disgusting, right? to cover something dirty. You just whitewash over it. When he calls them whitewash walls, you know, of course, to my mind comes the dairy farm. I know what's on those walls. And so I assume he's calling them, you know, walls full of manure, but, but they're, they're, they're covered over. They're painted up. They're, they, they have this presentation. There they are in all their garb and regalia. They look so awesome. But underneath, of course, there's manure. They're whitewashed tombs. Scratched beneath the white surface and beneath them is death. And so Paul speaks prophetically. But, and, and, and so I, I want to hold this moment up as a chance for us to look and say, okay, Paul, was a, Paul had his own weaknesses. You might want to make the argument, it be, again, another Socratic discussion. Do you think Paul was right to do it? Paul himself repents of it publicly. But you might say, well, he's in jest there. He's not being serious. But I think he is. I think he is. I think he shows his weakness, his humanity, his sinfulness, and he snaps. But then when called out about it, very interestingly, Paul owns it. And says, oh, no, might have justified it there for a second by saying, I didn't realize that was the high priest. But he's like, yeah, the law says you shouldn't speak to your leaders that way. And he publicly repents of it. Something about the nature of Paul, his weakness, but also his humility and his obedience at the end of the day to the law 
even in a place where everything in him must be just screaming, say more, say more. But Paul doesn't. So we see his boldness, we see his weakness, we see his humility, and we see his obedience. And then, of course, his wisdom, I think, with the little grenade that he throws into the crowd with the issue of the resurrection that throws the whole thing into consternation and chaos. So we learn something once again, this little glimpse as we hold Paul up and reflect upon him. But now let's move to the conspiracy because here I think we get to, the, to a deeper substance, something that's worth even more contemplation because on this back end, I think we don't just get to look at the character of Paul, but here we get to look at the character of God. Paul goes back to the barracks. The conspiracy happens. <clears throat> but also, Paul gets a word from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how he got this word. I don't know how Jesus appeared to him. I don't know how Jesus spoke this to him. But all I know is Luke reports it as the Lord said to him. What the Lord said to him was, you have ministered here. Now you must minister in Rome. Now, remember, it was Paul's desire to get to Rome. He wanted to get to Rome and from Rome on to Spain. So it's his desire to get to Rome, and now the Lord is saying, you're going to get to Rome. You've done your job here. It's over now. Now I'm moving you to Rome. You're going, you're going to get to Rome. So think about Paul now, because he has this, all this unsettledness of what's happening, a hard time making sense of it all. But now the Lord comes and drops this truth on him. He says, you have, you're done here. You're going to get to Rome. Now it's going to be a couple years before Paul gets to Rome. He's going to have to go through some real trials. He's going to be up in Caesarea. We're going to go through shipwrecks. We're going to finally get to Rome. But the Lord said, you're going to get to Rome. He's saying you're going to get to Rome at the same time as this conspiracy is going, which if you just looked at it on the outset, seems like it's, going, it, it's a very high chance that this is going to happen. Because if Ananias, the high priest, comes back to the barrack leader and says, hey, listen, look, we know we've, there's been an outbreak but, uh, of, of, of an eruption, but we'll keep this calm. Let us have one more crack at this. The, the leader of the barracks, the tribune, he, he would be happy to have the Jews settle this. It's a very high probability that he could get Paul down there one more time and 40 guys laying in wait to kill him. If you're just looking at this from a human perspective, not hearing what Jesus just said to Paul, you'd think, wow, there's a pretty good chance this story ends tomorrow when Paul gets dragged back down to the Sanhedrin. So you've got this conspiracy, a very likely conspiracy happening here, and you've got the word of the Lord over here saying, Paul, you're going to Rome. And you're looking and going, I don't think he's going to Rome. I think he's, he's going to get whacked in the streets of Jerusalem as he goes down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow. Now here we're faced with the sovereignty of God and the free wills of men. We're faced with the reality of the doctrine of God's providence in which he navigates and works masterfully even through the free decisions of men to accomplish his purposes. The story I thought of, I don't, I'm guessing your mind didn't go there, but maybe it did. But bizarrely, my mind, when reading this story, went to the story of Joseph and his brothers. Because his brothers also came up with a conspiracy like this. You'll remember. Let's lie in wait for Joseph. And when he gets here, we'll kill him. Remember? We'll kill him. But the Lord had spoken to Joseph. And he had said to Joseph, you're going to be a king. 
All your brothers will bow down to you. Your mother and father will bow down to you. You're going to be a king among your family. That's, how could Joseph make sense of that? He's a kid. His brothers are lying in wait. Now, if you didn't know that, you'd think, wow, you got Joseph alone out in the wilderness. His brothers have free run at him. And they do get him. And they're going to kill him. They throw him in the pit. And they have some fun overnight while Joseph's whining down in the pit and thinking, all right, we'll kill him tomorrow. But the Lord had said, you're going to be a king. Now, if you're Joseph down in that pit, you've got to be thinking, did I hear that wrong? Is it really possible that I could be... And then forget about it the rest of Joseph's life. Remember, it's not the next day he becomes king or the next week or the next month or the next year, but like a decade where each time Joseph must think, oh, okay, now it all makes sense. God's providence all makes sense. I see. And then he's just sold into slavery. And then, oh, oh it all makes sense because I went to Potiphar and look, I'm ruling his house. Okay, I see what the Lord is doing here. And then he's falsely accused. He ends up in prison. But then he starts to run the prison. He says, okay, I, I, I see what's happening here. This is going to be my, my way out. I'm, I'm actually running the prison. And then the guy says, oh, I'm going to take you. I'm going to mention your name to Pharaoh. This is going to be great. And Joseph says, oh, okay, I see what the Lord's doing here. But then they forget about him. I mean, just again, 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 just trying to see. I don't think this is going to happen. But the Lord has said it. And yet you've got the conspiracies of men. The Lord told Paul, you're going to be in Rome. But the conspiracy is happening. But Paul, obviously waits on the Lord I think he takes Psalm 37 whether or not he had that psalm in his heart but he waits upon the Lord and the Lord does this amazing thing because while the conspiracy is happening somehow I don't know how Paul's nephew who we didn't even know existed gets wind of it and somehow has the boldness to counteract it think about what that means for that kid that's pretty bold. And then to approach the Roman garrison and to get in and speak to, us, speak to the leader of the garrison and give him advice. Go back and read it. He tells him, when they ask you, don't do it. I mean, the boldness of this kid. Can you imagine a Roman letting this Jewish kid talk to him this way? I'm telling you, when they do this, don't do it. And the guy takes him seriously and gets Paul the heck out of there. Now, Paul's going to have a windy road, to be sure. Paul's going to go through all sorts of trials. The trials do not end. Just like Joseph. It won't happen overnight. It's going to happen through many trials. But the Lord has spoken. And whatever trials come, and I'm sure, again, in the moment, you don't know the end of the story. You don't know how the rest of this story is going to go. And what turns and twists and pitfalls they're going to be. And they're going to be there. But Paul did have that word from the Lord. Now, how do we apply that to us? I'm guessing most of us have not gotten such direct words from the Lord about some thing and plan that we have or desires that we have in this life. We don't know. But the Lord has made us bigger and grander promises about where we will be and where the end of our journey will take us. He has promised us in Romans 8, for example, that all things will work for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. You end up in Rome. You end up in Rome. The problem is you don't know how. You don't know what conspiracies there are. 
You don't know what trials await you, what pitfalls, what shipwrecks, how long the journey will be. But the promise is all things will work together for good. You end up in Rome. And this is the wonderful doctrine of providence. We trust the Lord in his ways, though we can't see how it goes. So what does the psalmist say? Wait. Rest. An amazing thing to say in Psalm 37. While you've got enemies lying in wait for you, he says, rest. Rest in me. Both Psalms, interestingly enough, Psalm 37 and Psalm 59, which I said both were going to, they're both Old Testament readings today. One sung, one read. If you happen to notice, I don't know if you did, in both of them, it says the Lord laughs at them. The Lord laughs at his enemies. The Lord laughs at your enemies. Psalm 2, by the way, the psalm that I quoted for you earlier, where he says the Lord will dash them to pieces. In that psalm, it says the Lord laughs. Rarely do you hear about God laughing. But in these three psalms, where enemies conspire, why do the nations plot in vain against the Lord and his anointed? The Lord in heaven laughs at them. Psalm 2. Brothers and sisters, nothing can harm you. Nothing can harm you. Nothing can undo the plan of God. It may get scary from time to time. You may not see what the heck the Lord is doing. It may not make sense to you. But nothing can harm you. Nothing. Not disease. Not death itself. It's been conquered. Not the greatest enemy. Not political circumstances or political parties. Not cultural forces. Not old age. Nothing. Not unemployment. Not broken relationships. None of these things can harm you. Just like Joseph's brothers couldn't harm him. Just like the Sanhedrin couldn't harm Paul. Not one thing will happen to Paul. Not one hair of his head will fall apart from the divine appointment. And if the Lord appoints it, then in the end, it, along with everything else in his life and everything else in the cosmos, will work together for Paul's good. He will get to Rome. And so will you. An understanding of God's providence, I, I, there are very few things more valuable to meditate upon in our relationship to the Lord and our understanding of what he is and who he is and how he works than an understanding of his providence. Because if you have it, it will make you courageous. You will know no fear. Now, I'm not saying in the moment you won't be scared. But fear will not master you. Fear will not master you. Because you understand the sovereign word of the Lord. Though all may conspire, the Lord laughs at those who oppose him and his anointed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this model of Paul that is placed before us, a bold man, a weak man, but a humble man, an obedient man. But Lord, most of all, we thank you for your sovereign hand of providence. It is what guides. It is what leads. It's what preserves. And Lord, we trust your word. You've made promises to us, and we hold to them. We cling to them. We wait upon you. We rest in you. Guard us from fear. Guard us from fear mastering us. Even Jesus' soul was troubled, so our souls will be troubled. But it didn't master him. It didn't keep him from obedience. So, Lord, do not let it keep us from obedience. 
will trust in your word. May your will be done, for it is for our good, and we thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen.